this morning we're going to talk about three major things. I want to throw it out to you right away so you kind of know what's coming. Uh, the first thing we're going to talk about is the uh, issue of divorce, especially in the church. The second thing we're going to talk about is children, which might sound familiar since we just covered this material last week. And the third thing is the kingdom of God or eternal life. Um, I'm going to ask this morning as we get into the word, um, because all of us come from different backgrounds and all of us have different experiences in life, that we would allow some grace for one another this morning. I pray you allow grace for me. I will certainly allow grace for you. And we're just having a conversation about what God's word says. So I don't come into this thinking there's no one that's affected. As a matter of fact, I almost guarantee that everyone here has been affected by divorce in some way. And so I'm going to pray for some grace for us. But I'm going to pray more than that for God's wisdom that we might hear what he has to say and we might be changed because ultimately we're trying to conform to God's word and not um, continue to be conformed to the world. Uh, Pray with me if you would. We're going to ask the Holy Spirit to teach us this morning as only he can. So pray with me this morning. Father God, we thank you for a chance to come here and to sing great and glorious songs of who you are, of your worthiness for worship of our presence before you, and what a delight it is, what a foretaste it is to worship you with your people. We pray that that is a blessing to your ears, that it is a joy to your heart, and that you are pleased with your people as we offer our gifts to you this morning. We pray, Father, that we, as we come into your house, that we want to not just praise you, but to learn from you and to experience you in that way of discipleship. And so we pray, Father, in this time that your Holy Spirit would teach us, as you promised would happen, that we would know in our hearts, that we would believe with our minds, and that we would live our lives differently because we've encountered you, the true and the only living God. And so we come with that full expectation today. I pray that the things that I've been meditating on and the words that come out of my mouth would be glorifying to you, And I pray the things that we hear and choose to believe, no matter um, what is said, is is glorifying to you. Ultimately, you are our only hope for salvation, and therefore we long for you this morning. May you be glorified. May your people be encouraged and blessed. We love you so much, and we thank you for your word that became flesh in Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So we're going to jump right in this morning. We are starting in the 10th chapter of Mark. Uh, for once, we actually landed right on a, on a chapter division in the book. And so we're going to start here in uh, Mark chapter 1. And I'm going to ask that we would just kind of delve into the text. One thing that's really difficult in this series is keeping all the text in context. And it's kind of exhausting trying to remember all the journey we've taken for Jesus. As a matter of fact, I kind of believe that it's how we should find some grace for the disciples when we think, what, what are these guys thinking? How don't they get this? Because the reality is that for us, we're experiencing the text week to week like this. They're experiencing it day to day with Jesus. It's easy to imagine how they could not quite catch up to what he was putting down, right? They couldn't quite grasp it all. And maybe we're having the same problem, you know, as we continue to move forward. What's the context of what's being taught this morning? Um, Last week, Jesus taught about how to be humble in his kingdom, how to serve him well, how to receive children in his name, and what a blessing that is. How to offer a cup of water to a brother who's preaching the good news, or a sister. And then lastly, about the perils of eternal life or eternal condemnation, right? Jesus believed that hell is a real danger to us. And we ought to believe it as well. And so I want to kind of preface all today's teaching in that idea, that context of the greater scripture, right? 
He's teaching about things that really matter. You remember the last thing we read as he said, if your hand causes you to stumble, your foot causes you to stumble, your eye causes you to stumble, get rid of them because it's better to have the kingdom of God than any earthly pleasure. And so that's kind of the context as we jump into today's text. And we're just going to kind of sit in it. I hope you'll do this with me. And we're just going to kind of walk through the text and what it says. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 10, this is what the word says. Jesus then left that place and went to the region of Judea across the Jordan. Now check it out. Again, crowds of people came to Jesus, and as was his custom, he began to teach them. I just want to stop for a minute and and say that this is how Jesus works. Jesus is by default a teacher. As a matter of fact, the word here is custom means his habit. If you hung out with Jesus for any period of time, he will teach you something. There's no reason to believe that just because we're removed from that moment of his physical presence that he's not still teaching in the same very way our very lives every day. Not just on Sundays, not just when you're reading the Bible, not just when you're hearing it preached, but in your real life. Jesus shows up to teach us and it says, as was his habit, almost his character, he taught the crowds. Check it out. It says it there. Again, the crowds of people came to him when he crossed the Jordan. Verse 2 Some Pharisees came and they tested Jesus by asking, is it lawful that a man should divorce his wife? So they come. I want you to notice a couple things. I want you to remind you who the Pharisees are for a minute, okay? And we're not picking on Pharisees. I also want to remind us that Jesus loved Pharisees. He loved them. That's why he kept trying to tell them what the truth is. But the Pharisees are those people that that really took God seriously, You remember there's kind of two terms for people who challenge Jesus in the Gospels. The one is the Pharisees and the other is the scribes or the lawyers, the lawmakers, the law interpreters or readers. But the Pharisees were people who would live out what the law givers said was true. If nothing else, we have to believe that they wanted to live a holy life. And they were serious about it. They had given up much for the glory of God. And so when they came and they were asking this question, there is part that they're saying, what, what do you, how do you interpret the law? Like, what is, what is, is it lawful? Do you see the question? Is it lawful that a man should divorce his wife? That's one thing. And, and the second thing, though, is that they're testing Jesus. Unless we miss the connection here, the word that's used of the Pharisees here is the same word that's used of the devil in the desert with Jesus. The devil tested Jesus. That's what it says, doesn't it? Or tempted Jesus. So as we start to think about this question, and and why would this question be a temptation or a test for Jesus, I want to kind of just give a little background. Not a lot, just a little background on my understanding of the text. When the Pharisees are saying, is it lawful that a man should divorce his wife, they're wrestling with the real problem that Israel has. It seems that in the day, back in the day, there were two major thoughts about divorce. One is that you could divorce your wife for any reason, anything at all, right? That was one kind of belief system. And then the other was that you could divorce your wife for uh, infidelity, what the word, this word is so broken for us, fornication. I have no relationship with fornication as a word. Maybe some of you do. But but for... um, Lack of fidelity, maybe, is the way you put Lack of faithfulness. You could, you could divorce. That was another belief. And so they're asking a question, and they kind of know the reasons to test are, are because remember where they're at. They're with a crowd of people. Don't, let's not forget the context. And they're with a crowd of people. In the middle of the crowd, the Pharisees say, is it lawful the man should divorce his wife? Now, as Jesus does, 
<laughs> he does this great thing. What's he do? He answers a question with a question. Do you see it? In the next verse. What did Moses command you? He replied. Jesus asked, well, what do you think is true about, what, what are you currently believing about this? And this is the response they gave. Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. That's what Moses allowed. Moses allows a man to put his wife out. That's what Moses allows. I want to take just a moment and lay out some timeline stuff here again, lest we forget where we're at in the story, right? We have um, Abram, who is called into, out of a foreign land to follow a God he does not yet know. He's just going to go pursue this God who's speaking to him. That's Father Abraham, right? Abram becomes Abraham. And then we have um, Israel, and then we have, I'm skipping over some stuff here, but then we have Moses, and Moses is the lawgiver. You remember, Moses went up the mountain, came down with the laws, broke them, went up the mountain again, came down with the laws, right? This is Moses, the lawgiver. And so when Jesus says, what did Moses command you? They knew Moses' command. Well, Moses said we can give a certificate of divorce. This is going to be important in a minute in, in Jesus' answer that we understand the order of events. As a matter of fact, when you read the New Testament, you ought to know the order of events whenever you're hearing arguments from Romans especially or writings of Paul because Paul was a Pharisee among Pharisees. He knew the law. And so we ought to keep that in, con in mind as well. Here we go. What did Moses command you, Jesus asked. They said, Moses permitted a man to, put, to write a certificate of divorce and send his wife away. And Jesus answers this way. It was because of your hard hearts that Moses wrote you this law. And then check it out. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but they are one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. I want to kind of unpack that for a minute. But the first thing we ought to see is that in the, in the middle of this conversation about what's lawful, what's allowable, what's permissible by law, how far can we go? Jesus reminds the Pharisees and all those in the crowd that in the beginning God had a plan. Matter of fact, this is crazy, but it goes all the way back to the very creation of humanity. This isn't some new development. This isn't some New Testament teaching. This isn't some Mosaic law teaching. This is a creation order thing that God has done. I love that we sang that song today, um, You Are Not Alone. You remember that's one of the things that God assessed when he looked at Adam, his, his man in creation. It is not good for man to be alone. It's not good for people to be alone. And we ought to know that. Here in this moment, though, Jesus goes back to the overarching truth of who God is. Remember, Jesus taught us one who had authority. He wasn't necessarily worried about kowtowing to everyone's interpretation or misinterpretation or misapplication of the law or God's desire. He would just say, do you not remember God created them male and female in his creation. And then he quotes, and this comes right out of that creation narrative, by the way. It's for this reason that a man will leave his father and mother, by the way, who would leave their father and mother willingly, who would just, you know, run off from a secure household. Man, I mean, 
sometimes we will flee insecure households, but if, if you're in a house of love and care, you, there, there's a tendency just to, I'm happy here, you know. We were talking this morning about baby camp isn't, isn't here yet, and we were all praying, right? But baby camp's like, not yet, <laughs> you know, not ready. What would cause you to move from a house of love and protection and care out into the world? And, and God says it's because he's made a partner, a helper, and you will leave all that security and pursue your bride. Oh, and then, huh? and this is all from Genesis. He's just quoting scripture. The two will become one flesh. That's what Jesus says about marriage. This is his response to the question of is it lawful? But he makes an assessment in verse 5. He makes an assessment about the condition of humanity's heart that we would even pose such a question Am I allowed to do this? What is lawful? He says this, it's because of your hard hearts that you would ask such a question. It's, that's why you're asking. D do you think he just means the hard hearts of those who are married and wanting a divorce? It's included, right? Because of your hard hearts. But there's this, there's this idea that even in the asking of the question, the Pharisees are hard-hearted toward the things of God. What's legal? What can we get away with? How can we, how can we ride that edge and still be righteous? What should we instruct others to do? And how can we do it ourselves? Um, I love the, the text here because this um, idea of hard-heartedness is it's the idea of having a dry, you know, like a shriveled up, dried up part of your life. And then this is your cardia, it's your heart, the place where you draw passion from. And you can almost imagine, you can almost imagine in their righteousness, the Pharisees have become hard-hearted toward the truth of the gospel. Hard-hearted toward the one they're contesting and tempting here. Now, this law was allowed because of your hard-heartedness. That's what Jesus says. That's why it was written down. Because of your own hard hearts toward one another. I was thinking about if you've ever um, seen uh, those little uh, this is like the image of a, of a life in Christ, right? You ever seen those little dinosaur things? They're super tiny. Sometimes they come in a little pill and you drop them in water and they start to expand. Like that's the image. I thought if I could get one of those, I'd been awesome. Like a little heart that would just, you could just drop it and it would just begin to, and you could, it's just saturated, right? It's just soaked in the truth of what? Of God's love of who God is. It's just, and it becomes bigger and bigger and it gets sloppier and sloppier and you can squeeze it and you can put, and it holds things and it's fulfilled. I was reminded of the scripture that says uh, you are a fountain of life in us, right? You spring forth from the inside out. We're not asking for external watering. We want internal renewal of our spirits and our souls. That's the, what's missing when we're asking what's permissible by law. What can we get away with? Jesus has this teaching. He roots it in the creation narrative in Genesis. This was never God's intention. This was because of your hard, dry hearts. Matter of fact, practically, man, and I'm not speaking as one who is not with you, but practically, when you begin to ask those questions, when is it permissible and legal? Are we not just being really hard-hearted? And, and let me say something, right? Maybe that hardness comes from scars and wounds and hurts pain. And you're just like, I'm done, I'm done. Jesus, when can I quit? But that's all about us, right? Our experience in that moment. Our hard hearts. 
And what we come to Jesus and ask for is not hard hearts. As a matter of fact, the words is what he'll replace our heart of stone with a heart of flesh. Place a heart that can no longer love with one that can love eternally. Much grace. Well, they ask the question, you know, when, when can a man divorce? And he says it's because of your hard hearts. But in the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. And this is the reason that he will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And then here's the miracle. And the two will indeed become one flesh. Jesus quoted it. Jesus believed it. Check it out. He doubles down. So they are no longer two, but they are now one. And then in verse 9, he says this. Therefore, whatever God has joined together, let man not separate. Whatever God has joined together, let man not separate. I've had some friends of mine say to me, I'm, I'm, I'm married in the eyes of God, or I want to be married in the eyes of God. Some folks in our culture might go to a courthouse and just do a courthouse wedding, right? Some people might stand in the front of a, a really pretty building uh, with all the ornate trappings and, and believe that I'm just committing myself to this woman or this man in front of me, and there's nothing else going on. But what my experience has been that whether we realize it or not, in the act of marriage, God is at work. As a matter of fact, in Jesus recalling the creation narrative, he, he, he draws it in. Do you see that? <laughs> I mean, do you see that in the moment when the Pharisees are asking about these present divorces and maybe those back there divorces, uh, Jesus says, wait a minute, God has always been at work in the issue of marriage. This is his good idea. I know not many people are comfortable with that. Right now, you think about people saying, oh, you know what, keep your religion out of my marriage, right? Keep your religion out of my uh, politics or, or whatever it is. But the truth is that you cannot read the Bible and believe that God is indifferent about marriage. Can't. Now, is it fair to say we can't have man-made institutions that mimic biblical marriage but aren't? I think, yeah, we can create our own stuff. Men have been doing it for thousands of years. But will it have God's blessing? Will it be God's desire? seems that he is at work in these things. My own testimony comes, comes like this, and I'm just saying it's mine. I'm not saying it applies to everyone. I was making promises I couldn't de- keep, but God took it seriously. God was serious the day I got married. More serious than I was. More serious than I was. And through pain and trial and difficulty and error and falling down and getting up and trying again, he's continued to reveal himself in my marriage. Not perfect, but a gift. Something that causes, forces, compels me to have a softer heart or to recognize my hard-heartedness? I don't know. Is it different for you? Who's at work? I think a fundamental question we can ask is, who is at work in this moment in my life? I said that to you before, did I not? Do we go to God when things are good? Do we go to God when things are bad and say, God, what are you doing? I know what the world is doing, but what are you doing? Do we dare do it in our relationships with our spouses? God, this is a mess. I'm a mess in here, but what are you doing in this moment? I remember one time I was talking to a couple that were contemplating divorce and, and they said to me, uh, uh, you know, we were there, but I, I think God, I, I don't think, I didn't know what I was doing. That's what, I didn't know what I was doing all those years. If I had known then what I know now, I wouldn't have done that. Therefore, I should get out of it now and not do, not do it anymore. And the question that compelled us, was God absent? Was God absent? I may have told you a story before. A, a friend of mine was going to the pastorate. He was going to a pastorate. And he was, he was in theological training. He was, he was going to school to become a pastor. And in the moment, in this moment, he got this conviction that, oh yeah, he, he's so passionate about Jesus that he ought to divorce his wife so he could pursue ministry. See, I'm not, I'm not talking about all the rest of the, and this is a man of God who says he's called by God. And he's like, I, I've got it. I'm called 
to divorce my wife and, and pursue Jesus with all of my passion. And the question came up in our conversation, brother, was God absent that day? Did he not know when he made you in your mother's womb that you would marry this woman, that he was going to call you into ministry? Do you think at that point he's like, you know what, yeah, forget that stuff because this is the real promise for you? Or is God saying, no, you hard-hearted man. I know who you were when I called you. I know your situation, your circumstance. There's more teaching in the scriptures about this, but we must see that so many times, <laughs> Pharisees, right? <laughs> we cloak it in religious doctrine and dogma. <laughs> What's permissible for me? Not what is God doing? Oof. Or not how is my heart in this moment I'm asking? So he says, whatever God has joined together, then let men not separate. I've had couples in wedding ceremonies say, I don't want that said. You know that part in the wedding ceremony you say, um, if any of you knows some reason they should not be legally married, speak now or forever hold your peace. A lot of people don't, kids these don't want it. Don't say that stuff. I don't want people to object to my wedding. And I always tell them, hey, it's a good opportunity to say, speak now or shut up forever. Don't come to me three weeks after my wedding and say, well, that was a bad decision. Shut up. You were at my wedding. Speak now. Say something. There's some reason we can't go forward. Otherwise, keep silent. This idea that God is at work, man, and, and I believe it. Like, I believe it. I pray. I pray for couples who are married. I pray for marriages in and around our church. I pray. Believe that God is at work in your marriage. Now, I said to you when we started out, are we wounded? I bet you everybody here is affected by divorce. I just believe it. We are swimming. But don't believe the lie that this is some modern cultural construct. You remember when this was 2,000 years ago? Pharisees, legal, like holy man asking, hey, how can we legally be divorced? Right? This isn't a modern construct. But we're swimming in it. Swimming in this uncertainty. And we've all been affected in different ways by divorce. So this is, again, not preaching about, you know, I'm just telling you what Jesus said, but I want you to know that there's grace abounding in this, and, and there's this reality that we're all affected in some way. But bottom line is that God is in this marriage thing. So check it out in verse 10. That's his instruction. I want you to see the context change. In verse 10 it says, when they were in the house again, the disciples came to Jesus and asked about this. So I want you to see what happens here. Jesus is with the crowds, and the Pharisees test him and tempt him. And this is Jesus' answer. God created man and woman for one another. This is the reason. And if God brought it together, let nobody divide it. Don't do it. But it must have bothered the disciples to the point that when they went in the house of Jesus, they said, okay, tell us more. This is a pattern, by the way, in a disciple's life. When Jesus says something you have a hard time with, you get alone and you say, Jesus, tell me more. What does that mean? This obviously unsettled the disciples in some way right? This obviously affected them in some way. They didn't just go, yep, that's what the Bible said, and then move on with their life. They, they went and pressed in. Jesus, what does this mean? And then he goes even deeper into this doctrine of marriage. And this is what he says. Anyone who divorces, this is in verse 11, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. Come back to that. Verse 12, therefore what God has, oh, I'm sorry, verse 12, and if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. That's about the point where you wish you wouldn't ask Jesus about it. Because <laughs> he goes, oh, you think this is, but check out this other issue. I want to talk about a couple of things in the deeper teaching here of Jesus. The first is this. The Pharisees are coming from a very uh, patristic view of society. Notice the questions they ask at the beginning. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Moses said a man can write a certificate 
for his wife, for her out. And Jesus answers this question in a much deeper way, including both spouses in their relationship. He says, if a man divorces his wife and marries another woman, he commits adultery against her. And my question is, against who? Against the other woman? Against his wife. He commits a sin against his wife that he has sent away. Hmm. And then he includes women. You think it's a big question about can men get divorced? What about a woman who divorces her husband? And you might say, well, you know, how can it, she apply for a divorce back then? She couldn't, Jesus sees some way that she can break up the relationship to a point that she wants another man. And it says, if she does that, breaks up her current marriage, marries another man, she commits the sin of adultery. Against who? Her husband. See, Jesus doesn't pull back off the doctrine. He says, no, it's even more than you understand. There's a fundamental sin issue here. You might say, that seems unfair. Two, two, there's so many things to talk about here at the church, but two things. Marriage is a blessing. It's not a curse. Marriage isn't like the car that you drive for a while and you get sick of it because there's a new car in the corner and you trade in your old car on that new one. This thing's a piece of junk. That one's awesome. In four years, that one's a piece of junk and that one's awesome. That's not what God's designed for marriage is, Right? So this speaks against that. No, God has a bigger purpose in marriage. As a matter of fact, thinking about the teaching, it says when God joins two together, let no one separate. It means putting you on the same team. It literally means to, put, to lock in with another and to pull the same direction. See, I, I talk sometimes in marriage counseling with people about this, and I say, you know, and in premarital counseling, man, we just try to always pour into people. I hope you do that in your life by pour into people who are seeking marriage in our life. Pour, by the way, singles as well. I'm not picking on, I'm not creating some hierarchy in God's kingdom. Like singleness is as glorifying to God as marriage is. So don't hear that message that somehow married people are more, matter of fact, Paul says what? You're going to have more trouble as a married person than a single person. That's what Paul says, right? But here's the thing. We want when we're in, we want to be this way as a couple, husband and wife, husband and wife, pulling in the same direction, not this way. And what happens in our marriage is we become this way. We become against one another. Or sometimes you feel like you're, you're, God has yoked you, you, know, yoked you to a, a dead ox. <laughs> you're just dragging them around. <laughs> They're pulling that way. You're pulling this. There's no coordination. There's nothing happening. But Jesus says God did that. Trust him with that. So we're trying to get this way, a team, like a literal team, team, driving forward, pulling one direction. He says to them, uh, she, she can divorce and commit, commit adultery in, in the same way that the husband is responsible. There's, there's dual responsibility in this marriage relationship. You think, well, that's harsh, pretty harsh. Do you remember Herod? Do you remember Herod and his brother Philip? And his wife, Herodias? That's in the Gospel of Mark. Do you remember? And do you remember what John the Baptist was killed for? That's not right. Herod, king, you shouldn't have your brother's wife. Do you know that the brother's name is mentioned in the passage? You always think about Herod and Herodias and Herodias' daughter who danced. But there's, there's Philip in the middle of it. And John the Baptist is killed because he stands up and says, King, it's not right. It's not right. It cost him his life. Jesus, you remember his ministry, 
kicks in the high gear when John the Baptist is beheaded to the point that Herod thinks it's John the Baptist reincarnated. So what does this mean? You go, goodness, you know, um, we're going to move forward in teaching this morning. I want to say something to you, though. If you're like, oh, because what I'm not doing is putting anything on your story, right? But examine the word of God about this. Don't be afraid. God is not there to condemn us. He's there. He will confront us, but he will, and he will rebuke us, but he will love us, and he'll call us forward. And we ought to trust God with that. If you look in 1 Corinthians 6 and 7, there's more detailed and deep teaching on marriage, even more so than here. I would encourage you maybe if you struggle with this to read through it. Don't be afraid to read what the Word of God says. Don't be afraid to ask hard questions. We're going to see some hard questions yet this morning. All right, so moving on. So, so after he teaches on this adultery, he says this, or the Word says this in 13. People were bringing little children to Jesus to have him put his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked the people. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. So I want to I connect this a little bit to what's happening. You remember when Jesus came across the Jordan and he saw the, um, the people, the crowds came to him, right? Because my question is, in the word, it says they brought children to Jesus. And I'm like, who's the they? And is it the Pharisees? I don't think it's the Pharisees bringing children to Jesus. I think it's the crowds bringing children to Jesus, right? They're bringing their children to Jesus to be blessed. I actually think you can color in a little bit of the conversation so far about marriage with this idea that Jesus had a ministry that was drawing husbands and wives, mothers and fathers and children from all kind of backgrounds into his fold. He was drawing them in. And part of the trap was in the middle of that, the Pharisees would say, hey, what's legal here? Because they probably saw some people who were coming to Jesus that they did not approve of. Do you know who this person is? So they, this group, this crowd was bringing children to Jesus. And in the middle of this process, the disciples began to rebuke them for bringing the children to Jesus. Which is hilarious, I think, that they do this. I don't think it's hilarious like it's funny to be honored, but it's hilarious like it's ridiculous. <laughs> you know, it sounds very much like something I would do immediately upon Jesus' instruction. When he saw this, he was indignant, and he said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a small child will never enter the kingdom of God. And then he took the children in his arms, and he put his hands on them, and he blessed them. Jesus. Now, the reason I think this is funny is because you might remember this, this passage of Scripture um, from Mark 9. I think I have it on the screens this morning. Yeah, Mark 9, 37. Jesus is instructing his, his disciples, and he said, Whoever welcomes one of these small children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me but the one who sent me. And, and that's barely a day ago. And then the next day, when they're at this new place, the disciples begin to rebuke people for bringing children to Jesus. It's, 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 it's shocking how quickly they forget his instruction. They begin to rebuke um, those who are bringing, don't bother. What does it look like? Don't distract him. He's too important for this. Don't, don't bother Jesus. Don't bother the teacher with these children. And Jesus says, no. And then he adds, remember he said before, um, if you welcome one of these children, you welcome me, right? But then here he says, the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And then he says, if all of you won't come to me like these children come to me, you won't enter the kingdom of God. You, you ever um, seen somebody holding a baby, right? You've seen this. That's the image of Christ. 
and his church or Christ and his kingdom. If you won't come, if you won't be carried, if you won't be held, if you won't be comforted, if you won't be loved, you won't enter. If there's something about you that you have to, <clears throat> I'm, a, I'm a grown man, I, I have to come by my own way, I'm going to find my, you're, you're not going to make it. Not going to make it. Jesus says, stop it, disciples. Don't keep children from coming to me. Get this, man. I think we ought to see that there's a natural, there's a biological or a, a God-ordained creative order where we want to bring our children to Jesus. I mean, bring our children to God, right? Like, there's this compulsion that we have as people. You know, you know if you're parenting, like, I, I don't know what I'm doing. So we just go, God, I need your help with this. I, I didn't, I, this wasn't my great idea, you know? I mean, I like the woman, or I like the man, but I didn't know this was going to happen. We bring our children to Jesus. Don't stop that from happening. Let them bring let him come, disciples. Pressing on, 17. Because this is all connected here, right? Check it out. In the middle of this conversation about these children, as Jesus starts on his way, a man runs up and falls face down in front of Jesus and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So I want to connect all these texts, right? So we have, how can you be legally divorced? What's the kingdom of God about? And now we got the, the children that are being rebuked by the disciples again. And he's like, don't do that. And here's this man who comes up and falls at Jesus' feet and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Good teacher. Jesus, first of all, says, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You could do a whole thing on that right there, and people have. A whole thing on why does Jesus say no one's good but God alone, right? But we're going to just jump over it, not because I'm afraid of it. I love to talk about it. But bottom line is I think that they're recognizing in Jesus the truth of who God is. He is good. He is holy. He is righteous. Jesus is self-identifying there. No one's good but God. And then he says this, you know the commandments. Isn't it funny, by the way, he just asked the Pharisees, <clears throat> what did Moses command? Here he's going to start quoting some. Don't murder, don't commit adultery. Same word, by the way, connects the text back to the previous story about marriage. Do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, and honor your father and your mother. And the guy says this, teacher, I have kept all these since I was a child. Right? Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack. I want to stop for a minute and say a couple of things. I've heard people say, oh, well, that guy's nuts. Who kept those laws since he was a kid, right? But let's just give him the benefit of the doubt. And let's just go ahead and say maybe he has. Maybe this guy really has lived the most righteous life. Maybe he has managed to keep from violating those rules. And I know you're going to say, well, Jesus taught there's harder things. I get it. But maybe he has. Let's give him the benefit of the doubt. Because I think when we see Jesus, we can too easily see Jesus punishing this man who came to him for eternal life instead of offering this man eternal life, which I think is what Jesus is doing. Did you catch that? I don't think Jesus wants this guy to go away sad. He wants this guy to come follow him and be free. How do I believe that? It says that Jesus looked at the man and loved him. He loved him. And I believe that the Bible is true. I believe what that's true. And so just like whenever Jesus is teaching the crowds about God-ordained marriage, when he's teaching the, the disciples about um, adultery and marriage, he's, he, he's loving us. He's loving his people. And he loves this man. He says, I want good things for you. There's one thing you lack. There's only one thing you lack. Let's give the guy the benefit of the doubt. It's too easy. You see, I think we want to say, well, this guy's a liar because he couldn't keep that stuff because then it gets off the hook for the rest of the text. There's one thing you lack, he says. Go sell everything that you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And look at the last words. We miss them. Then come follow me. You want, you want eternal life? 
just like, well, that thing you're holding on to more tightly than me, then come follow me, right? We don't like this because we say, you mean everybody's got to give away everything they have to the poor? You know, do you think he's talking to everybody? Man, I tell you what, there, uh, there are things I would let go of, I would have a hard time let go of than, than my stuff, personally. I can let go of my stuff. There's other stuff that would be harder to let go of for me. He's given some instruction here to this one, this one man in this one moment. He says, there's one thing you're lacking. He loves him. He sees him. He knows him. And he says, you're lacking this one thing. And this is what's amazing, by the way. He doesn't ask the guy to do something that's beyond his capacity to do. He says, as much as you have, give it away. As much as you have, give it away. We don't even know at this point in the narrative how much he has. We put a title, the rich young ruler. I don't know why it says young. I can't figure that out at all. Or the rich young man. I don't know why it would say ruler either. But I don't know why it says rich until later when it says he goes away sad. In this moment, Jesus says, go and as much as you have, you distribute it to the poor and then come follow me. You can't bring all your stuff. Just bring yourself. Have eternal life. I love you. This dude is standing on the cusp of being the 13th disciple. Do you get that? He's on the cusp of being invited into Jesus, into the private room, into the intimate teaching. I mean, that's crazy. And in that moment, it says the man's face fell and he went away sad because he had much. Hang on. What must I do to have eternal life? Just give up everything and follow me. Jesus' stuff. Jesus' stuff. Uh, I got a lot of stuff, Jesus. Wait. (laughs) Jesus, the marriage I think I deserve. (laughs) Jesus, the marriage I think I deserve. Oh, it's really good. This new car is going to be awesome. What are we pursuing? <laughs> you know, it's funny. It says, um, the man goes away sad. What do you think Jesus thinks in that moment? Dude, I love you. I know how much you have. Goes away sad. This is, Jesus compels him this moment. It says, Jesus then turned and looked around and said to the disciples, how hard it is for those who have much to enter the kingdom of God. You know, do you see what happens? The minute the man turns and rides away, Jesus turns to the disciples and said, how hard is it for those who have much to inherit the kingdom of God? Then he says this, 24. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus says again, now look at the word, children. Remember they were just rebuking children? Little, little kids, little people, how hard is it for, to enter the kingdom of God, those who trust in wealth? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. I think that's such a beautiful illustration of our position with Jesus. He instructs this very practically. I've heard that, I've heard that try to be explained away. Well, he didn't mean a camel, and he didn't mean a needle. <laughs> I think he meant a camel. I think he meant a needle. <laughs> By the way, I don't know why I picked on camels. Maybe because of the hump. Because I'm thinking a horse won't fit either. (laughs) Right? Zebras won't fit. Uh, Monkeys won't fit. I don't know. There's a lot of things that won't fit. Maybe it's the hump. Giraffe would have a hard time. Maybe. He says it's easier to stuff this huge animal through this tiny hole than for those who have much 
to enter the kingdom of heaven. As a matter of fact, um, the, uh, and, and by the way, I threw in some words you might notice. It, it's in the text that says, those who trust in their wealth. And their wealth isn't just financial, but their ability to do things on their own. Their ability to use things to their advantage. These are the things that keep us from the kingdom of God. It's that self-perception. You think, why did the man go away, right? But you and I know why the man went away. Because ultimately, he trusted more in what he had in his hands than what Jesus offered him with an empty hand. He believed more in the stuff he could cling to than the stuff that he could reach for. That's the truth. And he had more faith that this was going to be good to him than God was going to be good to him. And he went away sad. You see that? He asked the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And then God says, it's hard to enter the kingdom of heaven. Upon hearing this, the disciples were even more amazed and said, look at the word to each other. <laughs> who can be saved? I mean, if that guy can't be, who can be saved? And, and by the way, let's not forget that there are those following Jesus who had much, right? There were people who had much who were following Jesus. Who can be saved? And Jesus answers this way, with man it's not possible, with God, but not with God. All things are possible with God. It can be done. I want to end here. But this is the thing. I, I, you know, I don't want to say that God's mad at people who have much. It's, the point. it's not the point. God's not, it's hard for us to let go of the things we count on more than Jesus to receive Jesus. And by the way, there's no automatic glory in poverty. It's just not such a distraction because we know how needy you are when you're poor. You know you have nothing to give. Matter of fact, some people won't come around church or Jesus because they don't feel like they have anything they can contribute. I'm coming empty-handed, but guess what we all do? Jesus is not more impressed with disciples who come with hands full of things. God, Jesus says, uh, with man you can't do it. You can't stuff the needle. You can't stuff the camel through the needle. But with God, it's possible. It's possible. So tie us all together a little bit, right? How... How do you honor God with all that you've been entrusted with? Everything in your hands, right? You submit it to Jesus. Jesus, what would you have me to do? And all that I have is yours, and all that I am is yours. What would you have me to do? How do you, how do you um, bring your marriage to Jesus, right? Jesus, all that I have is yours, and all that I am is yours. What would you have me to do? How do you bring your singleness to Jesus? Jesus, all that I have is yours. All that I am is yours. What would you have me to do? You see, it's the same. Because the kingdom of God is worth more. The kingdom of God is worth more. Pray with me if you would this morning. Father God, we thank you so much for this opportunity to come and to be with you and to think deeply about what your word says and to take you at your word and not, and not, and I pray, I pray that we don't try to dance around things. I, I pray that I don't try to dance around things in my own life. Try to, try to find some way I can avoid your goodness and your love for me. I pray, Father, that instead we would trust you and we walk full on into your arms we would come like children and say, I need you. And, and, and there's nothing else that's more valuable to us. Nothing. And may it become more than words, but a testament of our lives. May, may we may be proven right in our actions that we believe that this is true. For all of us here, Father, we all have different stories and we all have different hurts and different backgrounds and we have different opportunities, but there's one kingdom and one God and one Lord of all, and we come to you. So I pray today, Father, for your Holy Spirit to minister to each of us. Uh, convict us where we need to be convicted, offer healing when we need to be healed, and set us free because we all need to be free. May you help us to pursue 
you in this life. May you be glorified as we continue to reflect in your word and follow after Jesus, our Lord and Savior, every day. We love you so much, and we pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.